Every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. She was the sixth superintendent in the last 10 years. So the interim will be the seventh and the eventual new superintendent will be the eighth in the last 10 years. So there's been a lot of turnover, way too much and way more than the vast majority of counties in the, in the state. Having these 90 days before going public and everyone knowing you've just won this large amount of money, it allows the lottery winner to get their new life in order before possibly being a target to people. Finding a large area where seagrass can grow but isn't already might be a little tough to do. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's start with one of this week's most impactful local stories. Late last night, the Alachua County School Board voted to terminate Superintendent Carly Simon's contract. Producer Ariana Aspidu spoke with WUFT's Will Levinson about how the vote happened and what it means for Alachua County schools. So Alachua County Superintendent Carly Simon was fired on Tuesday. In your story, you break down how the vote happened, but before we get to the voting itself, what happened before this to warrant a vote on her termination? Well, first of all, I just want to say it's kind of funny that you say Tuesday because it was almost Wednesday how late it went. I think they made the vote or she was officially fired at like 11.58 p.m. on Tuesday night. So it was really close to being Wednesday morning. But so essentially this all began. Well, it's been going on for, for months now in that general, there's been people that have coming to school board meetings and sort of voicing their opinion against Simon and I would say the first person that really was leading that charge was this lady named Karen McCann. And I had interviewed her for a story I did a few uh, you know, weeks ago and then school board meeting on, uh, I believe it was February 8th, spoke to McCann after that meeting. And she, you know, just explained that teachers are afraid to talk or have been afraid to talk because they're afraid of losing their jobs. And most of the discourse has been positive towards Simon because the last school board meeting, the one that I was at on February 8th, it was almost entirely pro-Carly Simon discussion going on in that meeting. And then at this meeting, it was very split. But it was at, during the end of the February 8th meeting where Mildred Russell, who is a, the newest member of the board, she was appointed. She was not elected. She was appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis about six months ago. And she's been one of the members who've been leading the charge against Simon about a day, I think it was a day before the last meeting, evaluated Simon on her performance over the last year and a half or so, last two years. Three of those five all gave Simon negative reviews. So board chair Rob Hyatt and member Gunnar Paulson found Simon's work to be unsatisfactory. That's what they uh, rated her in the evaluations. And then Russell said that she needed improvement. Um, but it was Russell that suggested or that wanted to pass a motion for the March 1st meeting, which was Tuesday night, to evaluate Simon's contract and vote on termination. And I'd say about 45 to 50 members of the community, religious leaders, community leaders, teachers, parents came and spoke and shared their opinion. It really was split. There was it was 50-50, truly. I mean, I had written down everyone's opinion, and it was very split on the opinions of Carly Simon. But it appeared 
that the main reason why this was happening in the first place was because a lot of people were afraid to talk. There were speakers who were in favor of the superintendent and others in opposition. Can you explain to me some of the points either side made? Um, well, what was really interesting to me was one of the first speakers, Linda Jones. She is a High Spring City Commissioner, and she came right out there very uh, deliberate in the way that she spoke. Dr. Simon is very is a very divisive person, she said, citing you know instances of low morale amongst High Spring schools and other schools across the, across the county. And that was really a key point from those that were against Simon was the general low morale amongst teachers and faculty. Several people complained that the bus system was severely broken in the sense that students were waiting hours, upwards of two to three hours for their bus. And it took, one parent say it, said it took her child four hours to get home one day. Although many of the arguments for her were that these were issues that were going on before she came and that she didn't have enough time to fix these issues. And then COVID hit and then a lot of people liked the way that she handled COVID, but it's, it, she was, she, she went against Ron DeSantis and his sort of no mask ideology, if you will. And she mandated masks across schools in the County. And it's, it became very political at that point. At the end of the meeting, when the board members had to vote, what did they say on the matter? If they did say something? Well, all five board members had a chance to speak, including Simon herself. She spoke for about 15 minutes, seemed like she had a prepared speech. And she came, Simon, when she spoke, it was very clear that she knew that it was over. Going into the meeting, it was the expectation was that three of the five board members were going to vote her out and terminate her contract. The hope from Simon and from the people in the community that, that like Simon was that the public opinion could sway their opinion but that inevitably was not the case. Two that are in favor of Simon and did vote for her to remain, that was Lynetta McNeely and Tina Certain. They spoke for over 23 minutes each. I mean, they just went on and on about how wonderful Simon is and how great of a job she's done and how it's imperative that the board gives her a chance because there is significant issues in the board as a whole. And Simon, is she was the sixth superintendent in the last 10 years. So the interim will be the seventh and the eventual new superintendent will be the eighth in the last 10 years. So there's been a lot of turnover, way too much and way more than a vast majority of counties in in the state. And that's been a big issue in the community and with the board, but simply the three board members just didn't see enough from Simon and were worried about the morale of teachers in the community. You mentioned that you went to the board meeting last month, and this one was just wildly different. Describe to me exactly what the room was like, just a little bit so our listeners can can understand it more. Well, it was a very lively atmosphere. There was some sort of banter going on throughout the room, positive or negative. You could hear, if somebody said something good about Simon, there was often claps. Most monumental part of the night, I would say, was both after Simon spoke and after the vote. So after Simon spoke, it was a ruckus atmosphere in terms of there was a standing ovation it was a a emphatic standing ovation from the audience i'd say at least half the room stood and clapped this is a big deal this is a really big deal for the community i just think it's very fascinating to see how the community cares so much and how people reacted to both ways both sides of the corner and how truly split this is and at the end of the day it's it's not a public vote and that's the way it works and I think it could, I think the public is specifically those who are in favor of Simon are 
don't really like that. And it seems like you've been following the story for a bit, at least since the last board meeting in February. How did you initially find it? What was it like reporting it? Well, it all started, um, I believe it was mid-January, actually, when uh, there was a school board meeting. And what really stood out to me was when Karen McCann went out and spoke, and she spoke vehemently against uh, against Simon and really just that's how it started for me and it's been it's been a, I didn't expect it to go this far this quickly I mean when I first spoke to McCann it seemed like she was concerned about getting Simon gone but she didn't seem hopeful that it would happen anytime soon so I think it's been about at the end of the day it's all about the board as Simon said it, 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 if the board doesn't like her then she, then she can't survive she will lose her job and I think Mildred Russell and Paulson they've led this charge against her and then in the end that's what brought her now and I think the board realized that the low morale amongst teachers in the county was enough of an issue for Simon to be relieved of her duties. That was WUFT reporter Will Levinson speaking with producer Ariana Aspidu. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. We'll be right back after this break. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. Let's move on to our next story. A bill that would temporarily keep the names of lottery winners in Florida secret is awaiting the governor's signature. It also has an unexpected supporter, a woman in prison for murdering the winner of a $30 million lottery payout. Producer Sarah Mandial spoke with Fresh Take Florida reporter Isabella Leandri about this bill. It's not something we hear about a lot, but so many lottery winners, um, especially those who received the lump sum payout, which is like all the money at once, um, can be targeted by people, whether it's for blackmail, even kill, just because, you know, maybe people want some loans of this money, you know. Sometimes people who have a lot of money are just expected, hey, you have this much money, maybe loan some to me. So in the Senate and House sessions where they're speaking of it, a lot of like these cases where lottery winners are targeted were spoken about. And that's why this bill would enact a law where these lottery winners' names will be kept secret for the first 90 days. Just so, you know, not all of their public information is out there right away after they just win possibly this very large amount of money. One supporter of this bill that you mentioned in your article is Dee Dee Moore. Um, She spoke out about her own personal experiences related to it. What is her story? 
Yes. So I spoke to Dee Dee um, over the telephone. She is currently serving a life term at the Lowell Correctional Institution in Ocala. She was actually jury convicted of the first degree murder of Abraham Lee Shakespeare in 2012. She was convicted and his death was in 2009. He actually was a lottery winner of a $30 million um, payout. So that's why I wanted to speak to her because she is so close to one of these situations that is being talked about, about why we need this bill to protect lottery winners. And when I spoke to her, she actually is in favor of the bill and believes that lottery winners need more protection, more time to keep their name secret and be able to just get their new life together. Could you go over some of the details of the bill and what its status is right now? Yes. So the bill would keep the names of lottery winners who win over $250,000 or more secret for 90 days, unless the winner chooses to have their name um, and information publicly identified. You can choose to if you would like. But the bill is now um, waiting to be signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. He is expected to sign it as early as this month. It passed in the House with a 114 to one vote and passed in the Senate with a 37 to one vote last month. So you mentioned that there would be that extra 90 days. How is this beneficial to lottery winners? What are they expected to do at that time? Well, um, going back to Didi, I can tell you a little bit about what she said. Um, Basically, what she told me was these lottery winners, you know, their whole life has changed because they've just received this large amount of money, you know. They need to open new checking accounts or maybe are going to go buy a new house, a new car, just kind of get their whole new life in order um, with just their financials having these 90 days before going public and everyone knowing you've just won this large amount of money, it allows the lottery winner to get their new life in order before possibly being a target to people, you know, begging them for money now. Yeah. And going back to Didi again, Mm -hmm. um, in your article, you mentioned that she said she doesn't think that 90 days is actually Mm -hmm. enough. Yes. Um, Could you go into that a little bit? Yes. So because these lottery, like some of these lottery winners, their lives could be drastically changed depending on, you know, everybody has different circumstances. She says that they need as much as six months to get their new life in order, depending on what they need to do, whether it be new checking accounts or, you know, getting a new house, um, et cetera. So um, she really said that. They just need more time. And she also said that whether um, these lottery winners chose to receive the lump sum payout or get payments over time should not be disclosed as well. Because right now under state law, um, you know, names are disclosed immediately as well as what game they played and how much money they received is disclosed to the public. Could you describe in a little bit more detail how someone would target someone who just won the lottery? So when Dee Dee met Abraham Shakespeare, she said that he only had about $1 million left of his lottery winnings 
and that he had spent the majority of it loaning it out and paying off the mortgages of his family and friends. And during the, her case and trial, prosecutors said that Didi had managed to withdraw uh, $1 million from Shakespeare's bank accounts and had spent the money on various things such as a Hummer and a Corvette and a vacation. At the end of your article, um, you mentioned some of the opposing opinions. Yes. So what are the opinions of those who have voted against the bill? So um, in the House, um, Representative Anthony Sabatini voted against the bill. And I actually reached out to him directly and he told me that his answer was quite clearly just people want to know who won the lottery, which is a government run taxpayer funded program. And he was the only representative in the House who did not vote for the bill. And then in the Senate, only Senator Ray Rodriguez voted against it. And how did you find this story? Yes. Um, actually, I just, um, I saw the bill on Lobby Tools. It's just, I've been following bills in this legislative session. And I saw the bill and I thought it was really interesting. And I initially went about trying to find um, lottery winners who may have won this year and trying to reach out to them. And then uh, my professor, Professor Brightus, actually told me, hey, you should reach out to Didi. And I began emailing with her and she immediately responded and was happy to speak with me. And we've been emailing back and forth and we got to talk on the phone and it's a great conversation about the bill and her thoughts on it. Under Florida's existing law, the lottery agency does immediately release the names of the winners, their city of residence, what game they played, the date they won, and what amount of money they won to anyone who requests it. It's even, I think, most of the time you can find it on the Florida Lottery website. Um, but the lottery agency does not disclose the winner's home address or phone numbers, but Today, this information can be easily found. So I think this is why this bill is being talked about so much because you can so easily look up this information and that could possibly make a winner of this large amount of money a target for blackmail or being killed. That was Fresh Take Florida's Isabella Leandri speaking with producer Sarah Mandile. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. Our world is changing and Innovation Hub helps you keep up. Each week we talk about ideas impacting everything from medicine to education to politics. I'm Kara Miller. Join me on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host, Melissa Fato. Florida's legislative session is expected to end on March 11th. Producer Malia Leiden spoke with Fresh Take Florida's Jack Prater about a bill that would open the state's seagrass beds to development has a slim chance of passing this session. Kind of just happened upon this bigger bill by chance while looking through what bills were going through the session right now. And what sort of stuck out to me when I found SB 198 
was that it was split pretty much down the aisle in a three to one vote, Republicans to Democrats. And with an environmental bill, that's always kind of a red flag. So I started digging into what other news outlets were writing about the bill. uh, And I found that there were a lot of op-eds just about that this bill wasn't good from a research or from an environmentalist perspective. So I started paying a lot more attention to this bill and sort of followed it through the legislature. And something that that happened that sort of surprised me was how cut down the bill became and news coverage just sort of dropped off with it. Sections of the bill got merged into another bill and most of the language about seagrass mitigation and about development on seagrasses sort of got cut from the language. This was the main crux of the bill and the main thing that was sort of inflaming environmentalists was that this bill was going to allow development on these protected habitats that manatees and other species feed on. Manatees having one of the highest death counts last year that we've ever seen are in and out of the headlines a lot lately. And so this sort of became just the next step in that story of telling what's going on with manatees and how are we going to feed manatees while legislation is going through the state that could limit the natural food that that these animals already have. So the story just sort of turned into how this bill kind of died out and what the opposition had to say, but also just what was going on in the legislative process and what did the language of the bill sort of evolve into. And can you take me through your reporting process and some of the information that you learned? A big help on this story was talking to David Cullen, who is the lobbyist for Sierra Club Florida. He just watching and going through a lot of the bills that I was interested in this session. David was there at most of them. He'd stand up and uh, and talk about the environmentalist argument for a lot of the legislation that was that was moving through. And so I spoke with David just sort of about where the bill was at the current moment, which was about a couple of weeks ago, and what the future of it was. Uh, and it didn't look good. From there, I got in touch with Peter Clark, uh, who's the founder of the Tampa Bay Watch nonprofit. And Peter had worked in the Bay Area since I think the 1990s, just on water quality issues, but they had hence moved into seagrass mitigation, actually, and were hired by the city of St. Pete to restore some of Tampa's seagrass areas. And they'd found a lot of success there. So Peter was sort of someone in the middle who knew how seagrass mitigation worked, but wasn't sure that this bill was the solution to the seagrass problem that we're having and the manatee die-off problem that we're having. Peter had a very middle ground stance in that development in Florida is important and we need to develop, but that is something that can come alongside protecting the natural environment. So he was really good about towing that line because he's been in the field for for so many years and it actually worked with seagrass. So I actually got to go out there and see some of the water filtration work that they were doing. I almost got out to go on a boat, but they just left by the time I made it there. (laughs) But it was a nice day, so it was too bad. (laughs) From there, I sort of just tried to get in touch with those who voted on the bill with not too much luck. Um, But I did end up corresponding with Charlie Chris via email, which was interesting because something, the thing about talking with Charlie Chris that I think is important to the story is that we've seen this bill in Florida before. And this is something that Chris, when he was a governor, actually vetoed. It made it through the House and the Senate, was sitting on his desk, and he said, no, this is not something that we need to do in Florida. So talking to him while he's running again for governor as a Democrat this time was really interesting because his opinion on this really hadn't changed much. And is there any more background information about this topic that you feel people should know about? Something that I found that was interesting is that people in the mitigation banking business 
didn't even want this bill, or some of them didn't at least. I spoke to Victoria Colangelo, uh, who's a mitigation bank sales broker. She's sort of the middleman between mitigation banks and those working on the projects. So she's worked for 15 years in wetland mitigation banking, and she was in favor of seagrass mitigation banking, this bill that was going through the legislature. But it also caused a lot of concern for her because she was worried about this mitigation banking bill because using public lands to her was a conflict of interest. The land that was purchased with taxpayers' money and under the protection of the state, uh, she didn't agree should be open to development like it was going to be. I think Peter Clark, who I just talked about, called opening up these state lands like the wild, wild west for seagrass mitigation banks. And while Victoria was sure that there wouldn't be any net loss in these seagrass banks and that they'd work, she wasn't sold on the idea that these were going to be public lands as opposed to private projects. And she had said that this bill had previously been a pipe dream, but was sort of getting closer to a reality. And I think it's just important that this is a topic that's been talked about for the past decade or so, but it doesn't seem that Florida has figured out a way to do it yet. And I talked to a bunch of researchers who, on speaking about the bill, had said that they hope that if this is going to be seriously considered, that they'd like to see researchers involved and some sort of research task force. So the basis of the story is that this is sort of a touchy bill that nobody is really sure will work. But if it's going to be given a shot, it should be well vetted and should have a team of, of researchers to sort of back is what I got from most everyone who spoke on this. And for those who may not know, can you describe what seagrass mitigation banks are? Seagrass mitigation banks don't exactly exist. <laughs> this bill would allow them to exist, but they're based on the idea of mitigation banking, which is done in, in Florida's wetlands. Um, so the way that that process works is that a company wants to develop on wetlands, or maybe a city wants to develop on wetlands, they have to fund and pay for restoration in another area in the same ecosystem. So it's sort of building on one area that is of land that is preserved or maybe sensitive, but taking what you took out of the area and putting it back in somewhere else. So the idea with that with seagrass would be Maybe someone wants to build a dock on state-owned seagrass beds because it's right outside their property on the water. This would allow people to go ahead with that construction as long as money was put into restoration somewhere else along the line. And one researcher told me that where seagrass is growing now um, is sort of where it's going to grow because it, it, it only grows in, in water, in places where the water quality is able to support it. And in places where it doesn't, it just doesn't. Um, and so finding a large area where seagrass can grow, but isn't already might be a little tough to do. And since your work was published today on March 2nd, have you noticed any reactions or updates that you feel people should know about? I really don't have any updates. But I actually got an email from a reader and he was asking what these development projects would look like because the story didn't really address that. But something to note is that these would be mostly small projects like docks or maybe expansions um, in port cities. So nobody's going to be out there building giant houses on, on seagrass beds. That's, that's not what this looks like. If seagrass mitigation were to happen, it would, it would start with these small projects. And I think that's something that might have been overlooked. Is there anything else you'd like to add or feel people should know about? Just that this is an issue that Florida has been talking about for over a decade. Again, I don't see it really going anywhere just because it didn't pass the legislature this time. There was a quote at the end of the story where 
Peter said, this is something that Florida will take a step back and sort of evaluate to see whether it's good for us. So I think that's what's going to end up happening with this not passing. That was Fresh Take Florida reporter Jack Prater speaking with producer Malia Leiden. That's all for this episode. Just a heads up that we'll be taking a break next week, but we'll be back the following week with the best news coming out of the WUFT newsroom. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Aspidu, Sarah Mandile, Melissa Fato, and Malia Leiden. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Melissa Fato. Thanks for listening.